If you're able to stand for our scripture reading this morning, please do so and take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll begin reading in verse 66. Peter denies Jesus. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter, remembering how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. Please be seated. Two of the terms that you will frequently here in a courtroom is a reference to either aggravating or mitigating circumstances. Your aggravating circumstances are the extenuating facts relating to the crime that occurred and that add to the severity of the crime, or you might say it adds kind of to the blameworthiness of the offender. Maybe there was a a weapon that was used in the crime. That might be an aggravating factor. Perhaps the person is a repeat offender. That would be an aggravating circumstance. And then in the other direction, conversely, are mitigating circumstances. And those are the circumstances um, involved in the situation that might, you know, reduce the liability or, or diminish that sense of guilt. That might include the age of the offender or maybe there's uh, you know the person that committed the act was kind of provoked and so those are factors that go into the decision making that has to do with sentencing or the severity of the crime itself well if you have any familiarity with what uh, mark just read for us from mark 14 there that has to do with peter's denial um against Jesus and of knowing Jesus, this isn't just a misstep. This isn't just like a lapse in judgment. He denies Jesus. Like unequivocally, he abandons Jesus in his time of need. He repudiates Jesus. That's to scorn him. That's to renounce him entirely. So, If we think about it, we could ask the question, well, is there anything about the context of what it is that takes place that would give us some additional detail um, about any uh, extenuating circumstances so that we can appropriately view how this played out and the decisions that he made? The answer, of course, is yes. But the problem is that the mitigating circumstances, what few, if any, exist are pretty scarce and the aggravating circumstances just pile up one on top of the other 
And really what does not help Peter's case at all is that this is taking place basically as a comparison against what is happening with Jesus. The two events are simultaneous. So what we looked at last time where Jesus is sitting before the council, where he's before the Sanhedrin, that is overlapping with what we're reading about taking place with Jesus right here. In fact, what takes place with Jesus starts in verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Then you'll notice immediately after that is this verse 54 where it says, And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now last time we looked at that entire section of scripture as Jesus being um, basically put on trial, in a sense, in in the home of the high priest. And that is the only mention of Peter in that section, but it is there on, on purpose. The reason that it's in there is to kind of serve as a placeholder for the fact that these, these events are happening at the same time. In a very real way, it's, it's kind of a, it's the Bible's way of doing, you know, saying, meanwhile, below in the, in the courtyard, Peter was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. And we looked last week at what took place with Jesus, and now the lens moves back to Peter. We've seen how Jesus responded when he was under the gun, and now we get a chance to see how his apostle Peter will fare. Now, I've pointed out a number of times before that it is a good practice that when you are studying a particular portion of one of the Gospels, that you want to try to stay inside of that gospel. It's not that you can't look at the other gospel accounts that, uh, that parallel it. It can be helpful. But you generally want to stay inside that gospel account, and you want to avoid kind of that blender approach of just putting it all together um, so that you get a good sense of what the author of that gospel is trying to communicate within that particular portion of Scripture. However, that said... In this, for this account, all four Gospels actually uh, record the denial of Peter, and there are different details that come together that I'd like to point out and to kind of bring it together so that you have the clearest, um, the most high-definition picture available in your mind for what's going on with Peter. And then we'll end with, or at least we'll circle back around to specifically what it is that Mark is saying. So, aggravating factor number one for Peter actually starts back in Mark chapter 14 in verses 26 to 31. If you just flip a page back, you'll probably remember this taking place. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. But he said, that wasn't enough. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So that's clearly an aggravating factor. Peter comes out of the gate with all of this bluster of there's no way I would ever give you up. There's no way. In fact, I would give my own life before I would deny you. But Peter not only in doing that uh, denied Jesus' prophecy to his face, uh, that bluster involved the, uh, the fact that he right in front of his own fellow apostles made this claim. And then you fast forward to Jesus' arrest, and we get to something that you, you know, in the give it right light, you might even be able to construe into a mitigating circumstance. But once Jesus was actually arrested, it was Peter that drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And probably not a particularly wise course of action, but you can see how someone could twist that and say, well... At least Jesus was taking action for his king. I mean, he came out presumably consistent with his word. You know, hey, God, hey, Jesus, they're not taking you without me standing up for a fight. It's like he's the one apostle willing to do something about it. And then we see what we just looked at in verse 54, where Peter follows him at a distance and again, it seems like he is the one guy that's willing to, you know, kind of follow Jesus. They all ran away for sure, but at least P uh, Peter followed from a distance to the courtyard. So in a sense, at this point, it almost seems like Peter, is, you know, maybe he gets a couple of points. Maybe there are some mitigating factors. But the truth is, when we compare this to the account in the Gospel of John, we realize that Peter is actually not the only apostle that is present. In Peter, I'm sorry, in John 18, verses 15 to 16, we actually get just a little more background information. In John 18, verses, uh, starting at verse 15, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, John is kind of famous for not naming himself in, in um, the gospel that he authored. So he's talking about himself. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another apostle. Since that disciple, so John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Verse 16, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, so we're talking about John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So see, there's a little more information there. In Mark's account with, um, with Peter, he comes straight in. With John's account, we get a little more, a little more flavor here where he has to go uh, contact the servant girl. So this girl is assigned at the door. She's kind of the doorkeeper of the high priest's courtyard, and she's the one that's sent to let Peter in. Well, now what happens is this same girl ends up basically becoming a star witness for the prosecution. After escorting Peter in, he apparently becomes comfortable enough, once he's inside, that he sits down by the fire, and he's even sitting next to the guards. 
So again, at this point of the story, you could even say, well, maybe there's a mitigating factor right there too. I mean, not only did he follow Jesus, but he comes in and he feels comfortable enough that he can, that he can sit right there next to the guards. But at this point that um, while we might want to admire him for his boldness for going there and for even being willing to sit near the guards, that that boldness, any kind of uh, a concept of there being mitigating circumstances actually flip and work exactly against him. Because what appears for a moment like boldness ends up exposing him for being a fraud. Because it's that same servant girl that catches Peter entirely by surprise. In verses 66 and 67, in Mark, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now, what we see and how uh, the, the translators of the ESV um, uh, put this, it just says that she looked at him. The Greek word there actually has a, a sentiment of intensity to it. In fact, in the NIV translated, she looked closely at him. Or in the New English translation, it says she looked directly at him. So if you're following the, the, the picture here, it's John that has to ask this girl to go get him. She lets him in. She escorts Peter in. He settles in. Then presumably, maybe by the light of the fire, she's now looking at him. And she's looking at him closely. She's looking at him directly. She's looking at him intently. And then she comes to the conclusion that she says right here, hey, wait a minute. You were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now you can tell just by the verbiage that she uses that she doesn't the way that she refers to jesus is that he is an outsider you were with the nazarene the nazarenes are not those that are from this area you're with that guy and then she adds jesus at the end there's a level of contempt in this servant girl's voice towards peter now what was it about peter that she recognized we don't know at this point what it was that she was seeing. You know, we don't know that she was out in the garden when he was arrested. That seems unlikely. But there is this girl looking intently at Peter, and she's like, hey, wait a minute. You were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And we know that this caught Peter off guard because we see his first act of disowning Jesus in verse 68 where it says, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Now, I'm sympathetic to the the, the translators at this point, because for us, you know, you've got to write something. And for us, that just reads like a kind of a normal sentence. Hey, I neither know nor understand what you mean. But actually, Peter is basically fumbling with his words. When somebody has accused you of something, a formal rabbinical way to legally distance yourself from that or to declare that uh, your denial of that accusation is to say, I don't know what you are saying. And instead, what we get here 
is something that is grammatically completely awkward. It's like he starts to say that, well, I, I neither know, and then he slips into, I, I don't understand what you mean. And so it turns into this awkward fumbling over the words. And on top of it, he's, he's like, I, I, I don't know what you, I, that's not what I mean. That's not, I don't know that guy. And then he physically backs up the fact of what he's saying, of fumbling that, over that, because he gets up and he leaves the area. This girl confronts him. She makes an accusation. He fumbles over his words. He then gets up and he heads back towards the gate. You'll see here it says, um, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And right there, we have aggravating circumstance number two. Jesus already told Peter to his face, when the rooster crows two times, by the time the rooster crows two times, you will have denied me three times. And here, after one of the accusations has already taken place, after one of the denials has already taken place, after he has actually um, moved himself towards the doorway, there is a crowing of a rooster. Ideally, what would have happened is that would have triggered the memory of Jesus's prophecy, and he would have thought, whoa, um, maybe Jesus was right. But instead, he did not. It didn't even phase him. It didn't even sink in at that particular time. Now, what's not evident in Mark's account of what's taking place here is that a little bit of time passes. Peter, though, returns eventually back to the fire. And if you look in John's account, you actually learn that when he returns back to the fire, now he's standing. So you're kind of watching this thing take place. Okay, he goes to the fire the first time, and he settles in, and he's sitting down. Now this time, apparently it's cold enough, and enough time has passed. He's made his way back to the fire. This time, he's standing. And this time... The girl says something again, but she says it in front of bystanders. And again, he denies his connection to Christ. In verse 69, it says, And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. And while he may have been able to just kind of disregard or tell himself that he disregarded this servant girl by herself the first time, now she's saying this to other bystanders that are standing there as well. So the pressure is starting to grow. The audience has grown. The accusation, in a sense, has grown. So what does Peter do? His commitment to the denial grows as well. You could say that this is aggravating circumstance number three because now Peter himself is a repeat offender. He's doing it again. And it's just like God to work it out this way. I know you know this in your life just like I know it in mind, which is your sin will find you out. And with, G, uh, with Peter, this is, this is on full display. For Peter... The more that he denies, the more his lies are revealed. In this account in Matthew, it tells us it's his specifically that it's his accent that gives him away. 
Galileans struggled with certain guttural sounds that are foundational to Semitic languages. For whatever reasons, Galileans pronounced them differently or at least had difficulty pronouncing them, which meant that it was obvious to anyone that was listening to him that he was Galilean. So that is to say, the more that he denied it, the more words that he used, the more he was actually exposing himself and the lies that he was saying. Even with all the visitors from Passover that would be there during that particular time, it would have been very unusual for a Galilean to be in the courtyard of the high priest. And so we see here in verse 70 that what the, how the bystanders respond in that second half of verse 70, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. It's this third accusation now that's, that's made by, it's in Mark's account, it just says by, by bystanders. But again, when we look at some of the parallel accounts, we actually know that that account is um, attributed to a relative of Malchus, so a relative of the guy that Peter, who, who Peter cut his ear off. So now we have somebody that was an eyewitness that was in the garden that now is listening to this little girl. It went from just her to her telling the bystanders to somebody now who probably has more clout among the group and that was actually out there in the garden and that uh, declares that it's Peter that cut off, somebody that um, cut off his relative's ear that can say that's who he was. And clearly there's no way to deny it at this point. Not that he's not going to try. It's here in front of everyone. This guy, this relative now has taken up the cause. And Peter, in his denial, doesn't just kind of get close to the line. He doesn't edge past the line. He pretty much does an Olympic triple jump in the distance beyond the line. He goes sailing past it. And we read in verse 71, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, there is an important distinction to make in this particular verse. There is a textbook, grade A, aggravating circumstance right here that may not be evident, particularly if you have an ESV, which is what I have as well. See, the ESV says right here, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. In the Greek, the words on himself are not there. The translators have uh, made an assumption by what's being communicated and put those words in there. And actually, in all of the other translations that I was looking at, it leaves those words off. So in the NIV, in the New English translation, in the NASB, in the King James Version, all of them have something close to the effect of, but he began to curse but it leaves off the words on himself. And I know that's a technicality, but let me tell you why that's important. 
That's because there are many times in the Bible, Old Testament and New, where a person makes a promise, where a person makes a covenant, where a person swears an oath. And in swearing that oath, they actually say, I, I, I make a promise at my own uh, expense. I promise you, I swear on myself. But in this particular case, this is the only place where an oath is given and it doesn't say on himself. That piece of information is missing. And so what we can infer from that is it's not that Peter was cursing himself. Peter was cursing Christ. Peter did not, what Peter actually was saying, to use milder language, forget that guy I swear I do not know this man. From the context clues of the language, we can realize that his attention is on Jesus without actually using Jesus' name. Without using his name, he gives a curse on Jesus and then refers to him as this man to lay claim to 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 add credibility to attempt to add credibility to his lying claim of ignorance. Now, I'll remind you again: all of this that we're talking about with Peter is taking place simultaneously downstairs with what's happening with Jesus upstairs. Jesus is under a microscope in front of a master manipulator that is the high priest. He's in custody. He's in front of the whole council. So this is the brain trust. These are the lawyers. These are the leaders of the Jewish people. And what is it that they're trying to pin Jesus down to but his own identity? In that context, Jesus maintains his integrity. He maintains his holiness and publicly declares that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And we know that that's going to cost him his life. Meanwhile, Peter, in his freedom, crumbles in front of a servant girl and does it again in front of the girl and some bystanders and does it a third time, making a declaration, making a, pronouncing a curse on Jesus and denying that he knows this man. He swears an oath of repudiation. And you could say, well, he was giving a declaration because he was in fear of his life. But you can see the difference is that he was willing to sacrifice his integrity. He was willing to sacrifice his honor. He was willing to sacrifice his virtue because he feared for his own life. Now, as if all of that wasn't bad enough, really the picture gets a little bit worse. There is the worst aggravating circumstance. We know that after Peter made his declaration in um, Luke's account, or excuse me, we know that after, uh, after Jesus made his declaration, we looked at the fact that he was blindfolded and beaten. And then we also know that in Luke's account of what Peter did, that um, 
the cock crowed during that third denial, and then Jesus looked at him. So, picture this. For the visual exchange between Jesus and Peter to take place, it had to have happened before Jesus was blindfolded or hooded and beaten. This most likely means then that at the time of Peter's third declaration, at the time that Peter curses Jesus and says, I swear I do not know this man, it is likely that Jesus himself heard him make this declaration, that Jesus looked at Peter, and then the hood or the blindfold was then thrown over Jesus's head and the beating commenced. That combination of events is just heart-wrenching. And, you know, as a side note of irony as well, while Jesus is getting beaten, do you remember what it is that they were saying to Jesus? They were telling him to prophesy. And go figure, they're mockingly telling him to prophesy while they're beating him. And at that very moment, Peter was fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus had provided that he would deny him three times before the cock crowed twice. So it's clear then why we read the reaction that we do in verse 72. And it says, And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Again, the original language here is uh, apparently it's a saying, it's some kind of an idiom. Folks don't know exactly how to translate it. Um, It's been in various places translated. He burst into tears. He covered his face and wept. He covered his head and wept. He fell down and wept. He ran out and wept. It doesn't matter. All of them, regardless of the wording, has the same result. Peter is absolutely heartbroken over his sin. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly repentance and worldly repentance. Worldly repentance, worldly sorrow. Well, that's probably the wrong combination of words. It's not worldly repentance. It's worldly sorrow for sure. It's sorry for the outcome. Really upset about how things turned out. And godly sorrow is broken over sin. Remember, Judas betrayed Jesus. He even went so far. He had enough sorrow that he went back to those religious leaders and gave them the money back. He threw the money back at their feet. And how did that end? It ended with him committing suicide. Jesus himself said that it would have been better if he had not been born. You look at Peter's repentance. He not only broke down in sorrow, he owned the sin. He wasn't just sorry for the outcome. He did not distance himself from his own sin. That is to say, he did not produce mitigating circumstances for his own sin. And I say that because the Gospel of Mark is largely Peter's testimony. 
Yes, it's Mark, or uh, more fully John Mark, that authors the book, the Gospel of John, but it's largely, it's understood to be Peter's account, Gospel account. And while I've combined a lot of different details from the parallel accounts in each of the Gospels to give us the fullest possible picture of what was going on, there is something unique to the account given in Mark. The greatest detail given regarding the denials themselves is recorded in Mark. The most specificity to the words that were uttered by Peter in his denial is provided in the Gospel of Mark. And we can learn from Peter's example. How do we look at our own sin? Do we distance ourselves, even though we're forgiven? Do we distance ourselves? Do we try to mitigate? But even while we look at Peter, we have to remember that the, that the, that the credit for the dramatic disparity between the heart of Judas and the heart of Peter does not go to Peter. It belongs to Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's Christ, it's our Lord that grants repentance so that we might have the knowledge of the truth, so that we might come to our senses and escape from the snare of the devil. And we know that the devil himself wanted to put Peter in a snare. Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, in Luke's account of Jesus's, uh, Jesus's uh, prophesying Peter's denial, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is why we see the repentance, the godly sorrow that we see in Peter's heart after he sent Christ down the river. He came to his senses. He escaped the snare of the devil. He maintained his faith because God granted him repentance. We can praise God because he does, in fact, love his children. He does, in fact, grant us repentance but it is through godly sorrow that we're reconciled. There are few sins, if you think about it, that were perpetrated against Jesus that you know, were more acute than Peter's repudiation of him. But praise God for Romans 5.20, which says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the grace that covered the sin, Peter was reconciled with his Savior. And here... This, you know, we read this account now in John that brought great relief, I'm sure, to Peter, and we can take comfort from it as well. After Jesus was crucified, after he was resurrected, he appeared to a number of his apostles. Peter was among those, and we have a conversation recorded in John chapter 21 that takes place between Jesus and Peter. Can you imagine that moment? That before. Peter curses his Savior, 
Jesus looks him in the eye. He is beaten before his eyes. And now here they are. They've met once again. And we see in John 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. You talk about the elephant in the room, right? Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's not incidental that Jesus asked Peter that question three times. Jesus was signaling to Peter that he was forgiven for all three denials. And the assurance that Peter was given from Jesus for his offense was the fact that he loved Jesus. It's true the deed was done, but it was in the past. Jesus looked Peter in the eye and prompted him to say out loud three times that he loved him. The result was not condemnation, but a calling to tend Christ's sheep. If you have not repented of your sins, placed your faith in the work that was accomplished by Jesus Christ, you are not justified before God. You're a justifier. That is to say, you're hoping that you're going to get an opportunity on Judgment Day to present your list of mitigating circumstances. I'm not that bad. It's how I was raised. I didn't have the benefit of fill in the blank. In the end, what you are is a yeah, butter. Yeah, but... Yeah, but you're nothing more than a yeah butter. There is no circumstance in your life. There is no history that you have. There is nothing that has happened to you that is going to mitigate you out of eternal judgment. It doesn't exist. There are only aggravating circumstances, not the least of which is this very message right here, that's telling you that you must repent and believe. You are faced with a choice. You will demonstrate worldly sorrow or you will demonstrate godly sorrow. Now to the justified, not just those that are wannabe justifiers, but to the justified, to my brothers and sisters in Christ whose sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, there are just as many aggravating circumstances in your life. 
But praise God, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I just want to point out three things. First of all, there are no mitigating circumstances for not identifying with Christ. Do you hear what I'm telling you? There are no mitigating circumstances, whatever situation you're put in, where you are justified in distancing yourself from Christ. Matthew 10, 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But... Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Settle in your mind right here and right now that at no time will you dissociate yourself from the truths of Scripture or the person of Jesus Christ and pray that God will give you the courage to follow through on that commitment. Number two, The adversary wants you to feel surrounded by accusers and to be crushed by accusations. He wants you to live in the guilt of your past. He wants you to dwell on the sins of your past. He wants you to be so covered in guilt that you are paralyzed in shame and God's word is telling you that is a lie. That is a lie. That is not your identity. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are free from that. If you, like Peter, can say, Lord, you know my heart, you know that I love you then you have been set free from that. And then number three, knowing that you are Christ's and that you openly identify as his child and knowing that you are set free from the yoke of slavery, you've got to get to work. The words that accompanied Christ's assurance to Peter were feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Just a few verses later in that same conversation, Jesus closed it by saying, where it says, and after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Following Jesus means that you have to acknowledge him to the outside world and the family of our Lord inside the church needs you to love and to care for them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we know that if the evil one were given his way that he would in fact sift your children like wheat but praise god we have an advocate we have christ advocating for us we have your holy spirit lord that is intervening for us and we give you the glory for that lord help us to never distance ourselves from the truths of scripture from the identity of christ Help us instead to be committed to openly letting the world know that we are Christian and living a life that is consistent with that, with that proclamation. Lord, help us 
not to be tempted to dwell on guilt, to dwell on the past, but to realize, Lord, that Christ has set us free. Help us to stand firm and not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Lord, may we truly follow you. Help us to love one another. May we be found faithful in your instruction to feed your lambs, to tend your sheep, to feed your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen.